You're listening to Three Broke Mice, a podcast collaboration of KBIA and Missouri Business Alert. I'm Kara Tabor. Welcome to episode one of our summer season. This show is the Getting Yourself Together checklist for those recent grads and young professionals in the audience working on starting their careers. We'll be covering getting a job, settling into your new workplace, and making adult life work. First and foremost, you have to snag a job somehow. If you're having trouble getting one or fitting the part once you step in the office, listen up. Jill Jacinto is the millennial career expert for professional lifestyle brand Works. She's here to explain some of the essentials for acing the job hunt in those early days of employment. Jill, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So to get started, what are some of the biggest job search musts that fresh out of school applicants often don't grasp at first? I think they don't understand how competitive the job search really is, and they're being way too honest when they are going on interviews that they've you know, finally reached that hurdle and somebody wants to meet with them. They're thinking that this person wants to hear their whole life story, and they're admitting that this isn't their first pick in terms of the job search. And they're saying, you know, I thought I'd be here, but I wanted to be here, so now I'm here. And no employer wants to hear that they're second, third, or fourth choice. They want to know that they're the belle of the ball. So it's really making the employer feel special and like that's the only place you've wanted to work. So many early 20-somethings took advantage of internships, fellowships, Mm -hmm. other opportunities during their high school and college years, positions where they definitely had to give an interview or two to get the okay. But following on the note that you ended on, what kinds Mm -hmm. of interviewing chops do they need to pick up for the big leagues of real adult employment? They need to understand that when you're applying for an internship, you have more leeway in terms of the type of conversation and your skills and what you're offering that employer, because basically everyone is on the same page. However, when it comes to jobs, you're competing with kids around the country or around the world who've also just graduated, or you could also be competing with people who are currently interning or working for the company and maybe looking to shift into this particular role. So you need to understand how to articulate what sets you apart. And at that stage in the game, what sets you apart is your energy and your ability to be a hard worker and to be a team player and get the job done. So those are the several items that you really want to check off your list. Imposter syndrome. So it's something that's probably existed for ages and affects a lot of us. But how does it play into the job seeker's mission? Well, it's funny. I think that most women, if you ask them, have they ever felt like they didn't belong in a certain career, they would all raise their hands, yes. Whereas men always say, you know, if I can tick off two items from a skills list for a job description, then I'm the golden boy. So that's definitely something where when applying for jobs, men and women tend to differentiate themselves. So I think that you just need to realize, especially this early in your career, that it's okay. You just have to fake it till you make it. And once you have the skills and the practice, you are the perfect person for the job. Going Mm -hmm. to something that's really important, um, especially for this younger generation. So millions of Americans, especially millennials, tend to broadcast a great deal of their lives on social media, personal and professional. What are some of the precautions that job applicants and even young employees should take when trying to get that job or keep their job? 
It's funny because a lot of times people think back 5, 10, 15 years ago and they say don't post anything online because it's going to hurt you. Whereas now everything is online. And if you're not actively online and tweeting and Instagramming and Facebooking, then it makes it seem like you don't exist. So you need to have a digital imprint out there, but make sure that it represents who you are and what you're talking about. So a lot of times people ask me, well, you know, my personal is my personal, my professional is my professional, and the two don't cross over, except they do because of this digital imprint. If if I'm Jill Jacinto out there, I'm speaking on behalf of my professional sense and my personal sense. So whatever I am tweeting out there, I need it to be okay with the clients that I work with and my company. Same goes for when you're applying for a job. And I've met with a lot of recent graduates and students out there who've said, you know what, if I'm tweeting something then, and somebody doesn't like it, then I don't need to work for that company. Except mm-hmm. you don't realize how isolating that type of statement is until mm-hmm. keep applying and applying and you're not hearing back because maybe you're making such a grand statement that's polarizing. And people think if you're able to use that type of language online, what will happen when we hire you? Will you continue that? Will you ever speak badly about a client or the company that makes us feel uncomfortable? So I think people really need to realize that what you're putting out there stays out there forever and could really hurt you. And on the topic of forming your image digitally, personal branding in general has become extremely important for professionals in an economy where staying at the same company or even in the same industry for your whole career really is no longer the norm. Do you have any advice for people who are just starting out to make a name for themselves outside of what they're doing on just blending their personal and professional on social? I would definitely recommend creating a LinkedIn profile because that's 100% professional. That's not the place that you're talking about your vacation or your dog or anything like that. That's 100% professional and you're in charge of the direction of that conversation. You upload your summary, which is essentially your cover letter, except it's totally for you. So you describe your career path and your goals and where you see yourself working. And that really gives people a chance to get to know you as a candidate, but also as a more, on a little bit of a more personal level, because, you know, they're not reading bullets off of a resume in that section. So that's where I would really start creating a name for yourself. Maybe also sharing interesting articles on the network that may or may not relate to your job or your industry, and also maybe even publishing content on your own and starting to get comfortable with what's out there and learning about what's out there. Sometimes it can take a really long time to get a job offer, sometimes up to months, you know, hopefully Mm -hmm. not more than a year. How can young people keep from getting discouraged, especially when they have their parents (laughs) nagging them and these expectations that they've went through school, they've quote unquote, done everything right, done everything they've needed to do, and nothing is turning up. It's funny. I just met with somebody who graduated business school, actually, from the University of Sweden. And he was telling me, you know, I'm going on all these interviews and interviews, and he's asking for my advice. And we just got into a wider conversation about applying for jobs and interview process. And he said, if I could look back at my last several interviews, especially those ones earlier on in my job search, I realized I made such terrible mistakes and now I wish I could go back and do them all over again. And I said, look, not many people get that first interview for their very first job right off the bat because interviewing itself is a skill and it's a skill that we really don't learn 
in college. Like maybe you'll go to one in informational night about interviewing, but it really takes real life practice to understand how you have this type of one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody and really learn to sell yourself because that is a practice, it's a skill, and it's an art to really articulate why you're the best candidate for the job. And it also takes a good amount of research in terms of learning about that specific person you're meeting with, learning about the company, and how you can really articulate what they're doing and how you can help them do it better. Once you get the job, starting a new career can be exciting, overwhelming for anyone, especially someone who's now able to live up mm -hmm. to these expectations that they've set for themselves. And can you explain some of the most important first steps that one can make when first settling into the office? What you need to do is always be professional. So what goes in with that is coming in early, looking the part. So making sure that your attire is correct, you know, you're seeing what other people are wearing. And you're being the go-to person. You're okay with whatever task is being assigned to you. A lot of times recent graduates, you know, they're not willing to make the copy or to copy the files. And I think that they really need to understand the bigger picture. Those files are being copied to be presented to clients to secure business for the company that will ultimately get you paid. So to really understand that each item that you're doing is something that's contributing to the company and to be proud of what you're doing. And to realize you have free will. If this isn't something you want to be doing, you could leave and go to your next position. But who's to say you won't be necessarily doing that there? Everybody starts somewhere. It's okay if you're not getting interviews right off the bat. But if it is taking a while and you notice all of your friends are getting employed one after another, maybe it's up to you to start changing your interview practice and asking your parents or a close friend who can be completely honest with you to go over mock interviews with you and maybe record you to see if there's something that you're unconsciously doing that you can really try to fix and try to do better. Well, thank you so much, Jill. Really appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you so Thanks much. so much. Fresh out of school and now wondering if you can truly have a fulfilling gig? To explain that you, yes you, can have both a paycheck and a passion is Adam Smiley Poswolski. He's author of the forthcoming book, The Quarter Life Breakthrough, a guide to help millennials build meaningful careers. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. When you begin telling your story, you bring up the fact that you quote unquote did everything right. So many people graduating from college now and moving on to adulthood grew up in the same sort of way, following this kind of magic success equation of sorts that included taking the toughest high school courses, being involved in leadership positions and every possible activity, and striving for the big name schools and careers. And obviously that magic success equation doesn't always yield the optimal results. So how can young people who are beginning their professional lives early on, turn things around? You know, you mentioned it. I think there's a lot of pressure to follow what I call a career ladder mindset, which is basically, if you think about it, ever since we've been in elementary school and then high school, we're taught to get on this thing and move one direction straight up. And you hop on in high school, and then in college, you pick a major. And then right after college, you're supposed to get a job that's directly related to your major. You start in an entry-level position, and then every year or two, you kind of move up this ladder. And maybe at some point, if you're lucky, at the age of 55, 
or 65, you retire and you can go on a cruise and, you know, sail and have this 401k and get to retire with a white picket fence. Um, the problem is that this doesn't work. Recent studies show that as many as 70% of Americans are disengaged at their jobs, which means that millions of people are waking up every day unhappy, unfulfilled, depressed, even not showing up fully for themselves or their families or their communities. And I think this is a shame. And what we have is a whole generation of students graduating with a ton of debt, taking on all this debt, being told that their college is going to prepare them for the world of work, and then having trouble just getting a job, um, but still being told to follow this career ladder, and it's not working. And I think one shift that people can take is finding work that they actually care about, finding meaningful work. Finding uh, work that reflects who you are, what your interests are, allows you to share your gifts, makes a positive impact in the world. So it takes a social problem, whether it's big or small or local, and changes it. And also is financially viable given the life that you want to live. So I, I really, I encourage people to take what I call a lily pad career mindset, which is a little bit more of a flexible idea, if you think about it, a career ladder moves straight up, you get on the ladder at, you know, the age of 18, you pick a major at the age of 20. And then you're on that same ladder at the age of 60. But what happens if you want to go to India to volunteer for a nonprofit? What happens if you're someone like me that wants to write a book at the age of 28, but has never done any professional writing before, you kind of feel like you have to jump off the ladder and start from the ground up. I like to think of it as more of this pond of lily pads that's kind of extending in all directions. And you can go in any direction. There's not one direction, right or wrong or up or down. It's the matter of kind of figuring out what's right for you, given who you are and the impact you want to have. And so going off of that and this lily pad perspective that you have, obviously quitting a steady yet, you know, grinding job at a moment's notice isn't a luxury for most people, especially young 20-somethings, fresh out of school, faced with student loan debt that they now have to pay off and cut off from help from mom and dad. How can millennials work on honing their passions while they're still in a job before making a career switch? Totally. And, and, if, you, and if you read my book, the message is not follow your passion. I think that that's actually a really flawed uh, message. A, a lot of people's, you know, if, my, if I followed my passion, I'd be sitting in the sun, hanging out, drinking a kombucha all day long. That's, that's not really a good use of my time or, or how I want to serve the world. I think it's more about people thinking about their purpose. Purpose is actually how you want to serve others or serve your community, what you want to do for the world. Passion is a lot more inward focusing. It's uh, what can the world do for me or what's my perfect day look like? I know a lot of people whose passion is yoga. Great. If there's 15 yoga teachers on your block, it's probably not going to be a good business, right? So you actually have to solve a need. I think it's really important to start small. A lot of times, you know, we graduate with debt. We need to make money. We need to pay off bills. I did this. I know so many of my friends did this. We need to just get a job and that's okay. So we can find a job that maybe isn't perfect. There's no such thing as the perfect job, but maybe it's the right job, the right job that actually reflects who we are, what our interests are, our skills. And maybe it's only one or two of those, or maybe it's just something we kind of like. Maybe we like writing. We really want to be working for a nonprofit, but that job's not going to pay as much. So we get a job uh, at a company that you know we, don't, we feel pretty solid about, but we're writing every day. So it has one of those things. And we kind of build the skills up so that we can move to something we care about a little bit more down the line. And I think it's really important 
to remind recent, recent graduates that your first job is certainly not going to be your last. The average millennial is changing their job every two or three years right now. And a lot of times we think of millennial job hopping, right? Oh, those millennials, they're just job mm -hmm. hopping. Actually, the statistics show that everyone, if you take all the demographics, millennials, um, Gen Xers, baby boomers, is leaving their job on average, if you take everyone, about every five years, <laughs> which isn't that long. Mm -hmm. So it means that in a kind of way, we're all job hoppers. And this new economy, because of rapid changes in technology and globalization, everyone is kind of leaving their job pretty frequently. So we all kind of have to be flexible and experiment and adapt. And again, that's not, not to say that people should think that their first job, they're going to quit in six months, because that's probably not good, very good for their company or their supervisor or, or their wallet, but does to kind of make you think of, uh, okay, I'm going to take a long game approach. This isn't about just this position. This is how about how can I build skills over a period of time? How can I develop a portfolio of experiences that's going to get me closer and closer and closer to what it is I'm looking for? And how can I think of my career as a journey? Not about the destination, not about the position description on LinkedIn, not about my title or about my business card, but about what I'm learning, who I am, what I care about. And maybe for some people, that means doing some things on the side. Maybe it means setting up that passion project you talked about while you have a job that's paying back some of your student debt, right? And it might not look pretty. It might be really difficult at a cocktail party or happy hour when someone's like, what do you do? And maybe you say, well, I have this job here. Uh, this is the job I got. This is the job that's going to pay my bills. And I'm starting this website. And I'm running a podcast with my friend. And I'm going to start this, the thing that I do on the side and kind of get a sense of what it is you care about over time. You don't have to do it overnight. In one of your talks, you use the line, do not let being a beginner limit your hustle. With that said, how can new grads and those just starting out avoid limiting their pursuit of passion, maybe because of fear or just that lack of experience? I think there's something so exciting about being young or new to something and being this kind of having this hungry, hungry talent because you don't know what you don't know. And I'm so glad, for instance, that I wrote a book at the age of 28, having no idea what the hell I was doing, never having written a book before, not knowing what publishing or self-publishing was all about. And I think that the reason it got done is because I didn't know anything about it. I know that sounds ironic, but we live in a society where we think everyone has to be an expert to do something. And if you actually listen to the stories of people that start businesses or you know become authors or do something they care about, often it's because they just went for it. Um, and they tried something that they were interested about. And that curiosity, that excitement, that kind of, I'm going to read these books. I'm going to take this online class. I'm going to go to this meetup. No one, none of my friends are interested in going to, but I'm still going to go, right? They're going to this party on Saturday night. I'm kind of over parties. Like, I'm going to go mm -hmm. to this meetup with people I don't know and just see what happens. It's that mindset. It's that attitude, that kind of being hungry that I think allows people to kind of take huge risks because they not, they're not even realized they're taking the risk. They're kind of like, yeah, I just went for it. I, 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 did, I did it. And then you meet so many people that have, you know, are, are 45 or 55 are like, I wish I just tried something I was interested in and then kind of wait for this perfect time because you kind of realize that there isn't a perfect time. There, there really isn't. You know, obviously, as you get older, there's a lot more responsibilities and whether you take on a mortgage or want to have children or a partner or a family, which are all beautiful things, it becomes much harder 
the obstacles in your way of, of kind of spending time doing something you really care about become more challenging. Not impossible, but it becomes harder. And I think there's something about starting young. And I have a, you know, in the book I talk about, it's never too early to start and it's never too late to start. So that flips, right? Because I meet a lot of 30-year-olds that are like, well, yeah, I'm, I, I'm already past my, you know, graduated from college, figuring it out stage. Mm. 30, I have to get it all together now. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 30 is a great time to learn. And there's an amazing TED Talk. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it um, in a book by Meg Jay, um, who's a psychologist. And she write, and it's all about, um, you know, why 30 is not the new 20. And it's kind of saying, like, don't wait. Um, you know, don't kind of push the can down the road and, and kind of, you know, say like, oh, your 20s don't matter. You have plenty of time to figure it out. She's kind of rebelling against this, which I think is completely accurate. A lot of times you'll see people in your 20s saying, oh, I'm just figuring it out. And that's not what I'm saying, right? Like career experimentation is not chilling on the beach or saying it doesn't matter or saying it, I'll figure it out later. It's taking tangible incremental steps right now to get closer and closer. It's learning, it's experimenting, it's trying jobs, it's trying part-time jobs, it's starting new projects. It's just taking that first step now. And if you haven't had the chance to do that at the age of 18, 20, 25, and you need to do it at the age of 30 or 35, that's totally fine too. Well, thank you so much again, Adam, for joining me today and giving your perspective. Adam's book, The Quarter Life Breakthrough, hits the shelves this October. Once you settle snugly into your chair and begin to adorn your desk with memes and ironic coffee mugs, admit it, you'll probably do it if you haven't already, you may start to notice something. You're one of the few younger people in your office. To give you some pointers on acclimating and using your generational savvy to add to your company is Sally French. She's social media editor at the Wall Street Journal's Market Watch and the co-host of the Boomers vs. Millennials video series. Hi, Sally. How's it going? Thanks for having me. All right. What are some of the biggest misconceptions millennials have when first going into the workplace? A lot of people talk about the entitled millennial kind of concept. And um, I think, you know, there is some truth to that. I think a lot of it's overblown. I mean, we don't literally require trophies for everything. But I, I do think it is important to know, I mean, this is your first job and you have to be willing to get the coffee and work your way up. And there's no task that you're ever too good for. I mean, if your boss says you need to make this PowerPoint then they had a reason why you should do that. And even if you think, you know, I have a degree from a prestigious institution and I shouldn't be, you know, making a PowerPoint slide, um, you you are. That's, that's your job. Uh, so I think that's kind of a big misconception is it's hard for people who go to these really great universities to then kind of be taken down. And you're used to A-plusing the calculus tests and, you know, getting all these accolades and you're not going to get that at your first job. What are some of the avoidable blunders that young adults make when first starting off in the professional world? 
start out dressing professionally. I know so many workplaces are so casual and so is mine. And I honestly could show up in yoga pants and I don't think anyone would bat an eyelash. But don't start that way. Start wearing a suit jacket and go from there. You know, work as many hours. Come before your boss comes and leave after your boss leaves. And, you know, my workplace is, is, I'm very fortunate, is very casual. And I can go to the gym for an hour during lunch and no one cares. But don't start off thinking you can do that. Um, Some workplaces, maybe you can't. So put on a good show to begin with and then see where you can get that flexibility. Otherwise, be professional. Um, Sometimes I feel like it's obvious, but it's not because I get emails that are written, you know, in Facebook speak, and that's cool for Facebook. But I mean, you really do need to write an email professionally, message someone starting off with a Mr. or Ms. It's amazing how far that can take you if you open up with respect. And if maybe you're a reporter and you develop a casual relationship with the source, maybe eventually you can, you know, text them and say, hey, what's up or yo, how's your day? But start off really being professional. In your web series, Boomers versus Millennials, you playfully explore the differences and habits and perspective that exist between younger and older generations. What are some of the widest difference gaps you've encountered? I mean, the whole video series sprung out of the idea that we had so many different scaps and some some of it was cultural. I'm one of the few people in my workplace who is in my 20s and everyone else is older than that, which is kind of interesting being in San Francisco where everyone is so young. And so we would just be kind of bantering around and, you know, Tom, who's my co-host, would mention a band that I've never heard of or he would mention like, hey, can you fax that? And I would say, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what band you're talking about. Like, I'm sorry, I just didn't get that reference. But also I would be like, why are you faxing this? Like, you can just take a photo on your iPhone and then just like, forward an email to someone like what is the point of vaccine and so we would have these silly conversations about you know a lot of technological things but then also like one day I was freaking out because I had all these voicemails and I was like why would you leave a voicemail just email me like I'll get it faster I can just read it quickly and Tom was like oh really like I didn't know that was bad like I always leave voicemails and so my generation is like just make it like quick and easy for me to read and then Tom says oh you know I want to hear your voice and actually leave a voicemail and let you hear the tone so we just have differences of opinion and it's been really cool to hear his perspective and then for him to share mine he has a daughter who's actually pretty close to my age so it's sort of funny to to be his coworker and tell him like this is how millennials do things now so obviously tom your co-host is down with bantering with you and exchanging ideas and differences in viewpoints between his generation and yours but what tips do you have for younger workers who don't have quite the same rapport with their older colleagues and are just trying to make things work so I do a lot of digital side stuff for the Wall Street Journal's Market Watch. And it's a lot of how do you print this? How do I screenshot this is a lot of questions I get. And to me, that's like so frustrating because that's that to me is easy. I knew how to screenshot, I think, when I was in third grade. And these people didn't even have the word screenshot in their vocabulary in third grade. Of course, I mean, why would they? But, you know, at the same time, I do things that frustrate them. 
um, I, there have been instances where I've literally had to fax something and I have no idea how to fax something. And they're like, how do you not know how to fax something? So just like I don't know how to fax, a lot of my coworkers don't know how to do something seemingly basic, like save an image from an email. <laughs> and so I think it's just being patient and, you know, understanding. We all grew up in this digital age. I got a cell phone in high school. Most of my coworkers didn't have a cell phone until after college, which is, you know, so crazy to think about. How, how did people go through college without a cell phone? But just, you know, really being patient and thinking of both perspectives. How can millennials navigate differences with their colleagues soon after they set foot in the office? I think it's finding out what the current process is. So, for example, when I started, we used AIM to message. Uh, we have reporters all around the country. I mean, I'm AIMing people in London and in Hong Kong. But within my time here was when Slack came out. And so I really got people on board with using Slack. But these people are like, why can't we just AIM? Like, this is easy. And I'm like, no, Slack is so much better. You can share documents and you can share code and you can make groups and we have bots. So every time something posts to our Facebook page, it just bots to Slack, which is really easy because our social team has, you know, so many people on it. So it's so great at keeping people on the same page of, you know, what article has gone up. Um, we have bots that let us know when something has gone out to Reddit that someone posted that was one of our articles. And it, it's just so useful to know. And so anyway, long story short is I'm trying to get people on Slack. And so that has been kind of my mission of like, you know, this is so much more efficient. And so I think you have to start out by seeing, you know, what's the procedure and kind of accepting that and then building that rapport and saying, you know, how can we make this better? And how can I bring in my millennial perspective? And so many people say to me, oh my gosh, you know, after I help someone print a PDF or something, they say, how did you know how to do this? Where did you learn this? And to me, it's like, I not at the University of Missouri, like I just knew it. <laughs> and so, so I think kind of you're so important bringing that expertise. And to me, printing a PDF is kind of a duh. And to so many people, it's not. And so it's, it's cool to bring in that perspective. And when you can go to the next level and say, you know, let's, let's make Slack, that's really cool too. And, and there, I mean, there's so much you can do beyond even that. What are some of the ways that millennials can use their perspective, skills, technological aptitude to help their older colleagues and workplaces as a whole? In general, millennials just, just bring in kind of a different perspective in terms of how you live or, you know, what you like to do. One of the things that we've done in our workplace is people talk about millennials have a culture of, you know, wanting to work out and have fun and, you know, some millennials don't mind working longer hours, but doing fun things within those hours. And so one of the uh, traditions I brought to our office is that every day at 10 a.m. we do a one-minute plank. And then on Tuesdays, we do a seven-minute workout of squats and lunges and things like that. I think it's just kind of brought a different energy to the workplace. And, you know, you always see these parody onion stories of 
people with Iron Man desks that have like bicycles underneath and ellipticals underneath. And I think, I mean, to some extent that's true. Like I have a standing desk and I just, I want to feel healthy. And so some of my other coworkers have adopted that too. Everyone on the staff does the one minute plank, which is hilarious. Yeah. It's so funny. And so I think it's cool to kind of be able to bring that into the workplace and I mean, it doesn't have to be a plank, but, you know, bring in some of your personality. And I think that's kind of the major difference between millennials and maybe boomers or, or, or a different generation it is wanting to have fun in the workplace is totally okay. And we do the plank just from 10 to 10.01. And then at 10.02, it's back to work. And so it's cool to just, you know, mix it up and do that in any way that you can. We'll, we'll do a millennials versus boomers episode on yeah. the planking. I actually think that's a good idea. Maybe so you inspired like, me. Like a competition. Like yeah, a, yeah. A plank endurance. How many people total in the office? Um, we definitely, in? I think the max we've had is probably a dozen people planking at one time, which oh. is pretty impressive. Are there any people in the office who kind of skedaddle before? Who have the like bathroom break that always happens at 10, 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Weird how that happens. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Sally. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Have a great Great. night. Well, you finally landed that job. Congratulations. As you're settling into your desk and scoping out the prime spot for hiding your lunch in the office fridge, don't start shrugging off emails from HR just yet. You've got your benefits to get in order. And I'm not talking about those that go straight into your bank account every two weeks. To help break down what some of these job perks are and what they do for you is Missouri Business Alert's Cecilia Salamone. Hey, Cecilia. Hi, Kara. Okay, so we're going to make a game out of this. I'm going to throw out a question about a benefit offered by U.S. employers, and you're going to pick from a list of possible answers. I'll tell you whether you're right or wrong and give you the lowdown on each benefit. Okay? All right. Sounds good. Okay. A 401k is A, a type of ultramarathon or B, the weight of a cargo ship, or C, a retirement savings plan? Oh, man. A 401k would be one heck of an ultra marathon. (laughs) Just saying that. But I'm going to go with C, retirement savings plan. Yes. A 401k is a type of savings plan that some employers provide that lets you put money away for retirement. And some employers will even match the amount of money that you contribute. That's a matching 401k. And 401ks can also follow you if you get a job at another company. And the best part is that they're tax-free. The money that goes in is taken out of your paycheck before taxes. And once that money is in the 401k, it isn't taxed until you start taking it out. Being at the start of your career may have you thinking, why do I need to think about retirement now? But the earlier you start planning, the more time you have to save up money and plan for that not-so-far-away future. Another common savings plan option is a Roth IRA. Employers aren't the only ones to offer this plan. You have to get one through an investment firm instead. The money contributed to this plan is put in after taxes are taken out, but just like a 401k, once the money's in, it isn't taxed until you start taking it out. But since a Roth IRA has no connections to your employer, there's no one to play twinsies with your contributions. Oh, dang. Well, definitely have a tough choice between those two, but obviously two smart methods to get started on building your retirement savings. And 
hey, um, just like you mentioned, it's never too late if you end up striking it big and <laughs> maybe can retire at 45 and relax on a beach or take one of those four-hour work weeks that Tim Ferriss preaches about. <laughs> hey, maybe it's a good way to set things up there. Yeah, I mean, I know I need to think a little more ahead, but yeah. <laughs> right now, no, no, I'm not. It's, but it's once hard. I get a, once I get a real job, yeah, but. it's hard when you're 22, 23, and oh yeah, just oh, yeah. life seems like it's all out in front of you. Yep, and you still have school to pay for, so that's fun too. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right, so on to question two: What's an HMO and a PPO? A types of highly processed foods that enhance work productivity. B Vintage AOL instant messaging abbreviations from the early 2000s still used in the workplace on AIM. C, two of the main kinds of health insurance. A sounds pretty interesting. Having some sort of superfood to uh, enhance focus and productivity would yes. be pretty sweet. B, bringing back some good memories, some yes. of early teenage awkwardness. Aim. But I'm pretty M sure. MSN. Yeah, <laughs> man, aim. Talk about that. Back having a handle, Kid Headbanger 72. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. Ooh. But I'm um, going to go with C. Two of the main kinds of health insurance just seems to make the most sense. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. So uh, HMO and PPO are abbreviations for two of the different types of health plans that an employer may provide. HMO stands for Health Maintenance Organization, and PPO stands for Preferred Provider Organization. And you may be given a choice uh, between the two by your employer. There's a few differences between the two. HMOs are all about the healthcare network, and to have care covered, you know, like doctor's visits, trips to the emergency room, you know, stuff that happens, you have to use a provider included in that particular network. Otherwise, there's no coverage. Womp mm. womp. Also, care under an HMO plan starts with a primary care physician. And because you're constrained to the HMO's network, you may be limited if there's a certain specialist you want to see or a hospital you prefer for treatment that's out of the network. And with the PPO, you have more flexibility in terms of who or where you go to. Um, PPOs don't require that you stick within the healthcare network or that you select a primary care physician who serves as the starting point for further care. So unlike with an HMO, you don't need to get a referral to see a specialist. So a PPO sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, but like hold that thought because with most healthcare plans, monthly premiums, deductibles, and associated fees are the norm, but HMOs do tend to cost less than PPOs on a monthly basis. And with the out-of-network flexibility of a PPO also comes a little bit of a catch. There's the potential need to file claims when you're getting care. Mm. And the closed network nature of an HMO means that your insurance company pays the healthcare provider you use directly, so you probably never have to file a claim. But with the PPO, you may have to file a claim for each visit because it will be you paying a doctor directly, especially if you get care from an out-of-network provider. Okay, so I'd have more choice in terms of who I want to go to, but potentially a lot more paperwork. Yeah, yeah, more more or less is that there's there's more flexibility with the PPO, but like there might be some, some hoops to jump through too to get through it. So, you know, we've been talking about... Some dry and complicated topics. Yeah, I'm getting so. kind of stressed out. <laughs> but maybe just quote unquote adulting is stressing me oh, out. I hate that oh, word. Oh, that's man. not um, uh, to adult is not a verb. So let's move on to uh, something slightly more relaxing uh, for question three. In 2012, uh, Monster.com's Monster Insights team conducted a survey to learn which benefits were seen as most important by employees. Which benefit came in second place? 
behind healthcare plan as number one? A, a pay raise. B, unlimited supplies of break room snacks. That's probably mine. Mm. C, vacation time. Well, free Twizzlers really would be the key to my heart. But I would rather eat them on a trip to some exotic locale than in a cubicle. And I bet that other people may feel the same way. So let's go with C, vacation time. That is correct. Uh, A sizable portion of the employees surveyed said vacation time at 25% saying that was second most important to them. And the survey showed that the women in the survey tended to put more importance on vacation time than the men. Mm. Mm, Don't really know why. Mm, I don't know. And vacation time is, of course, paid time off given to employees to go and on a break. In the category of company-provided time off or voluntarily, there's also sick leave, holidays, and days off in the case of emergencies. Different companies might take a different approach in how they would do leave. It's common for employers to increase the number of days off provided to workers at the time that the worker has spent as the company increases, and others will give a flat number of days off. So, you know, one approach that provides employees with more flexibility is a paid time of policy, which lumps vacation, personal, and sick time together in one pool of days that workers can pull from to make sure that any category of days off are paid. So if you schedule days off in advance and plan well, you can make time to schedule that special doctor's appointment or make a long weekend to go to Lollapalooza. Mm, Sounds pretty good there. That would be nifty. Well, thank (laughs) you very much for playing the benefits game. Not Shabby did pretty well. Thank you so much, Cecilia. Thank you. You've come a long way. You've gotten a job, hopefully started pursuing your life's purpose, bridged the generational gap in your workplace, and figured out your job benefits. Heck, now you're even paying for your own Netflix account hopefully. But if you're like millions of other young Americans, you have another new responsibility to take care of, paying off student loans. Former Three Broke Mice host Bita Egbali and I chat with Teddy Nykel of NerdWallet.com about how young adults can overcome the student debt hurdle. So um, graduating from college seems to be stressful enough as a life step, but uh, having tens of thousands of dollars of debt on top of that has to make things worse. What are some of the problems that millennials with debt are facing that maybe they didn't anticipate before stepping off of a campus? So believe it or not, one of the main problems is that students or recent grads aren't aware of the debt that they even have. Because a lot of times they took out this debt freshman year of college, they were so wrapped up in choosing their college, filling out their FAFSA, and they didn't really realize what they were signing up for in terms of their debt. It's actually really common for people to be surprised about what type of debt they have and how much they have. There's a few things that everyone should make sure they know. The first is whether you have federal student loans or private student loans. Most grads have federal student loans, which is the loans you get when you fill out the FAFSA, but those are actually managed by private companies. So that adds kind of another layer of confusion. So the second thing you should know is if you have federal student loans, who is your loan servicer? And that's the company that is managing that federal debt. And then finally, a lot of people have multiple loans in general, um, just because they take out a few every year. And so really just understanding all the different interest rates so that they can understand all the debt they're dealing with and kind of prioritize based on how much debt they have, their different interest rates and things like that. 
Other than interest rate confusion, what are some of the other parts of student debt that students are just, that they're getting wrong? Yeah, so a lot of borrowers don't realize that they actually have a lot of different options when it comes to repaying their student loans. For federal student loans, everyone is automatically set on a standard repayment plan. So that means that all your debt will be broken up evenly and you'll pay it back over 10 years. There's something called income-driven repayment plans, which is an option for federal student loans where you can make a payment based on your income. So for example, 10, only 10% of your income would be going to your student loan payment. And so it depends on the specific income-driven repayment plan. But that, for example, is one way to manage, especially if you have a lot of student loan debt, that can be a way to make sure that you're not paying an exorbitant amount each month. So it's a kind of a lot of moving parts, and that's why a lot of people find it really confusing. But really, once you kind of just take a little time to read about it, you'll kind of understand it. You can figure out which repayment plan is best for you. What about like some smaller choices that grads can make to ensure that debt doesn't stunt their career and stunt their finances in the long run or in the near future? Something I've heard a lot is so live like a college student for a few years after you graduate, even though you'll be making an income. So presumably in college, you're making no income or just a small income from your part time job. And so you've really gotten used to not spending a lot on clothes, not not spending a lot on food, you're eating a lot of ramen. Um, And so if you can just live like that for a few more years while you're presumably making a salary, even if it's a small salary, that'll help you save a lot of money. Just having that mindset of kind of living frugally for um, the first few years of your job, because it can be really tempting, you know, once you get a paycheck, once you graduate to spend that money, but trying to live as you have been in college is a great way to save some extra money. Thanks for listening to the first episode of our new season of Three Broke Mice. We really, really appreciate your time and your input. So with that said, please feel free to sound off about the issues and topics you want us to cover on our Facebook and Twitter pages. You can also email us at threebrokemice at gmail.com and see more show content online at kbia.org and missouribusinessalert.com. I'm Kara Tabor, and thanks again for tuning in.